Please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. The title of our message this morning is The Important Mission of Identifying Christ. The Important Mission of Identifying Christ. That is, to identify who Christ really is. John chapter 8, verses 48 through 59 is our text. I'm going to go ahead and read that. We read the preceding verses from verses 31 through 47 and earlier in the service. I'm going to pick it up now at verse 48 which says this. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They're speaking to Jesus here. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham, who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I know Him, I do know Him, and I keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Well, this morning I was asked to start off your missions week, your missions conference, and to bring the word with a focus relating to our mission. And I chose this passage because I believe that identifying who Christ is is foundational to any mission. I think that today the world loves to blur the lines between who Jesus says he was and is, who he said he was, and who people say he is, and they like to blur the lines. Today, my goal with this passage is to draw the line clearly in the sand and to make sure that you see how wide the line is and how far apart people are in their positions and how nobody stands in that middle ground. You're on one side or the other. That's our goal. I recently read the results of a nationwide George Barna poll which said that four out of every ten people believe that the following statement is true. True or false, when Christians, Jews, Buddhists, and others pray to their God, all of these individuals are actually praying to the same God, but simply using different names for that deity. Four out of every ten people said, yeah, that sounds right. They all pray to the same God, just use different names. Mahatma Gandhi would have agreed with that statement. He once said, 
The soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. There are several religions that teach that all religions are essentially the same, and it could be that many people that you know believe that that's basically true. Some here today might even think, yeah, there's really not much difference between one religion or the other. When I was in seminary, I served as a youth pastor, and there was an occasion where I drove one of my kids home to drop him off at his house. His name was Andy, and uh, Andy uh, said to me, would you like to come in and meet my parents? I said, absolutely. His parents had never been to his church, our church. I had never met Andy's parents, and so I went in to meet them, and hoping maybe I could talk with them about the Lord if they didn't know the Lord or find out why they didn't come to church, and, and Andy introduced them to me and and they said to me you know we are so glad that our son andy is coming to your church i thought this is starting out good i'm i'm glad too we, we love having andy here he's great and they said uh, but we want you to know that we want andy to grow up visiting lots of religious organizations and lots of faiths and so that he can go to this religion and and pick this out and go to this religion and pick this out and he could pick and choose from all religions and make his own religion and I said, well, that's, I'm not even sure how that would work. You know, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but by me. And so I would, you know, I don't know how you could say that Jesus is the only way, but yet you can pick and choose from all other religions and make your own way. Either Jesus was wrong uh, and all the other religions might be right, or they're all wrong and Jesus is right, but they both can't be right. And you know what they said to me? They said, well, you know, that might be true for you, but it's not necessarily true for us. And I said, wait a minute. I said, I'm, I'm even more confused now because it sounds to me like what you're saying is that I could believe one plus one equals two, and you could believe one plus two equals two, and somehow we could both be right. And they looked at each other and they looked at me and they said, that's exactly what we believe and we've never heard it explained so clearly. (laughs) This is the world that we live in. But it's a serious issue we're talking about because this is an eternal issue. Jesus said in John 8, 32, the truth will set you free. But which truth is it that we're talking about? Jesus said that those who abide, those who continue in his word, are true disciples. The word abide means not only just to uh, uh, remain, but it means to continue. It has this idea. If you are at the grocery store as a kid and your mother says to you, stand here in line uh, while I go get something else, she doesn't mean stand there and just don't move. She means carry on as though she was with you. And Those who abide in Christ carry on as though Christ were here earthly, in an earthly manner with us. If his earthly presence were still alive, we carry on. We're abiding in Christ. We're continuing in his word. And John 8 is such a beneficial passage because it's crystal clear that not everyone believes the truth that Jesus 
teaches. Someone in this passage is clearly wrong. They both cannot be right. And in fact, because this contrast is between Jews and Christ and his followers, his disciples, who would later be called Christians, this is a great one for us to study because if there are ever two different faiths that were so similar, it was the faith of those Jews and the faith of those followers of Christ. Because at that time, they used the same scriptures and they claimed to worship the same God, which is Yahweh. So if we can see that those Jews who claimed to follow the true God totally were in opposition and on opposite sides of the spectrum from Jesus Christ, then how much further away would be people who are outside of the further away from the Christian faith in their beliefs. Perhaps the biggest lie about religion is that you could believe something in the middle. That you could say, oh Jesus, he's such a good teacher. Trying to give assent, trying to find common ground, and yet you don't believe he is who he says he was. Well, today we're going to see that those who claim to follow Yahweh did not think he was a good teacher and that he had a different idea about them as well. I would propose to you that Jesus could never have been a merely a good teacher because he claimed to be God. And in John 8, verses 48 through 59... There are five questions that are raised from this text. Five questions that just scream out to us as we read it that should help you to determine whom you believe Jesus truly is. These are five questions that should help you who are believers make the clearer distinction between those who are outside of the faith and explain the gospel more clearly and those who are not sure about the faith, it should help you to say, where am I with Christ? Five questions, and the first one is this. Was Jesus demon-possessed? Was Jesus demon-possessed? Hard to believe that's a question that was asked, but it's clearly asked in verses 48 through 50. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus, in this passage and the previous verses leading up to it, has been confronting the Jews who claimed to believe that Jesus was sent from God. They had acknowledged that he must have come from God. And he's saying, well, there are some real inconsistencies in your life. On the one hand, you claim to be children of God. John 8, 39, you said Abraham is our father. They believed that Abraham was the father of the faith that they trusted in. Jesus also claims to be from God, and he also knows God. But they hate his teaching. They do not love him. They hate him. They have murderous thoughts about him. So he's pointing out some inconsistencies. How can we both be from God and yet we hate each other? John 8, 42, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. So the problem is, 
You say you're from God. I say I'm from God. You hate me. How can we both be from God? Well, we can't. So they say, we have an answer for that. We're from God. You're from Satan. You must have some sort of demonic presence in you that causes strife and anger in our hearts. One of them has to be following Satan. And as proof, Jesus says, let me show you why I'm not following Satan. John eight forty six. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? So Jesus says, all right, so one of us following Satan. We've got that established. Now, if one of us is following, then that person, you know, would be full of sin and rage and anger. So take a look at my life. Is there any sin in my life? Point it out to me. Just one. This is Jesus's point here. Just one place where my teaching even is contrary to God's teaching. Just give me one example. If my life is godly and my teaching is biblical, and if your lives are not consistent with godly biblical teaching, which I'm presenting to you, then you must not be from God. John eight forty seven. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Now, the Jews are dumbfounded by Jesus' statements. They have no real way to respond to this. And like anyone who's in a debate and has no good answer, they turn to attack him personally. So they insult him. That's what we do. I don't really have, I can't argue with your logic because I don't, I can't see anything against you and I can't see anything that's inconsistent with your teaching and God's word. And so therefore, I don't have an answer to what you just said to me. But here's what I'm going to say. They make two accusations. You have a demon and you're a Samaritan. John eight forty eight. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Now those are two slanderous insults on our Lord. The Samaritan was not only a racial slur, it was a religious slur, and it was an insult to his mother. Racially, most Jews hated Samaritans. Religiously, most Jews believed that Samaritans were not true believers, and if they did believe that they worshiped the true God, they believed that he didn't worship they didn't worship him in the right way or the right manner. And it was an insult to his mother because as they had done previously in the passage, they implied that he was born of fornication, that he was an illegitimate child, and that explains his birth. And as if that were not enough, they cast a second insult on him. You have a demon. Their thought is that Jesus must have this demon that causes people who are really good people to verbally attack others. And that's why we're sinning. We're sinning not because, you know... We're bad, but because you have a demon who's made us angry at you. Wow. That's, that's pretty ingenious, isn't it? So here's the contrast. Here's what we need to decide as we look at this passage. Either Jesus was demon-possessed or he was God-honoring. Is he demon-possessed or does he honor God? That's what we're trying to answer. In verse 50, there's great insight 
and to how he honors God. Take a look at verse 50. I think this is a treasure found in this passage. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. So in this verse, we see two ways that Jesus honors God. If you've ever wondered, well, how can I honor God more with my life? We have two examples in verse 50 of John chapter 8. First of all, he doesn't seek his own glory. Secondly, he he recognizes that God is the judge of all things. If Jesus wanted glory, he would have never come to this earth. He had glory. He was in the presence of God in full radiant glory. And he laid aside that privilege to come down here and serve the Father. Not only that... He recognized that God's opinion is all that matters. He recognizes God is the judge. It doesn't matter what other people say about you. It doesn't matter what other people do to you. If you want to honor God, his approval is everything. And he is the judge. And that's so hard for us because we get in these situations where people attack us and then we just want to just bite back. And we're not honoring God. Why? Because we're seeking our own glory And we're not resting in God as the judge. And if we could just learn from this example, wow, what a different attitude we would have in different trials. This was convicting for me. I I was just, just last week, um, uh, I was staying in, I was in Florida and I was, I, I booked a hotel room and they didn't work out. And then they, they ended up charging me twice. And then now I'm calling the, the, the third party that organized the hotel room. And, and, and then it's going back and forth. And everything in me is just welling up. And I just want to go, rah! You know? I just, want to, I just want to get on the phone and just tear the cord off. But there's no cord on my phone. So <laughs> I don't know what to do. And even as I'm studying this passage, I'm thinking to myself, what, what is it? What is it going on in my heart? What's the heart issue? It's me I'm concerned about. I'm not really concerned about God's glory in this. There's so many situations in all of our lives that this applies to. It's a great reminder for those of us who want to honor God. I want want you to keep your finger here in John 8. I'm going to do a little contrast here between John 8 and John 17. So we're going to go back and forth for for about the next five minutes. The reason I want to do this is because John 8, Jesus is in his earthly ministry. John 17, he's praying about, uh, just as he's concluding his earthly ministry, he's, he's almost done. He's about to be crucified. And so he prays for believers. And so we see a little bit of a contrast Uh, In John 8, we see Jesus is committed to glorify God. In John 17, we see that that is nearly accomplished, so much so that he says it is accomplished. In John 17, verses 4 and 5, read these with me. It says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus Christ came down here to serve. He lived a perfect life. The wages of sin is death. Jesus never sinned, therefore he never had to die. Yet he allowed himself to be crucified so he could be the substitution for others. 
You say, well, how could one man be a substitution for so many? Because he's an infinite God, and therefore he can be an infinite substitute for all who call upon his name. First question, was Jesus demon-possessed? Your answer to that question will help you to determine where you stand. There's a second question raised by our text. Was Jesus a deceiver? Maybe he wasn't demon-possessed. You wouldn't go that far, but did he deceive people? That's what they asked him in verses 51 through 53. The Jews claimed he was a deceiver, but in contrast, Jesus responded and says, actually, I'm the giver of life. I'm not deceiving anyone. I give life. John 8, 51 through 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Notice those last words. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Just who are you pretending you are? You're the giver of life. Everyone dies. How can you be the giver of life? Even Abraham couldn't do that. Surely you're not claiming to be greater than Abraham. But Jesus did claim to be greater than Abraham. He says, I'm the giver of life. Not only for myself, but for everyone who keeps his word which is a phenomenal statement in and of itself. And it's a frightening statement, isn't it? How many word keepers do we have here? How many of you say your life can be defined as I kept his word? What does this mean to keep the word? If keeping the word of God means I need to obey every instruction given in the word of God, I'm in trouble. And there's no life for me. I'm in terrible trouble because I haven't kept it all. Jesus summarized the law with two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And implied in there is that you would do that all of the time. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the time? There's no way. So how can I be a keeper of Jesus' word? John 8, 55 Jesus said at the bottom there, at the end of the verse, I keep his word, which is good. But have I? Jesus has kept the word of the Father. Now is when your finger in John 17 comes in handy. Just flip back over to John 17. In John 17, verse 6, Jesus prays. To the Father, he says, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me out of the world. A manifest, like a ship's manifest, is something that reveals to people on the outside what's really on the inside. You go to a port, you say to the ship captain, let me see your manifest. He shows you a list of all the cargo and what's on the inside. Jesus manifested the name of God to all those whom God had given him. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, that is phenomenal, which shows that the disciples whom had already followed Jesus, Jesus prays, and he says, you gave them to me, I showed them all about you, and I told them your word, and they kept it. Wait a minute, are we talking about the same disciples? The same disciples who fell asleep when they should have been praying? And watching, 
The same disciples who argued about who would be the greatest? Which side could they sit on? Are these the same ones like Peter who denied Christ three times? How could Christ pray to the Father and say, they have kept your word? Notice some of the other qualities in John seventeen six. They were yours and you gave them to me. You see, salvation doesn't have to do with any of your work. But those who have been given to Christ are characterized as word keepers by Christ. John 17, verses 7 through 8. Take a look. We get a little more insight here. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I have given them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you. And they believed that you sent me. You see those words describing them? They received Christ's words. They know where they came from. And they believe that Jesus is whom he declared himself to be. Those are the characteristics of those who have been given by the Father to the Son. Keeping the word is not what earns you the right to be called a Christian, but keeping the word is what characterizes those who have been redeemed by God. Those whom Christ has been given. They are known as word keepers. To keep Jesus' word is the same as in John 8 verse 31, to abide or to continue in the word of Christ. That is to habitually walk in his ways. It's to continue or remain in his teaching. Spurgeon once described it this way. Human nature's way of salvation is do, do, do. But God's way of salvation is done, done, done. This is the good news. This is the good news that we are saved by grace through faith. That is the key difference between Christianity and all other religions. Because every other religion on the face of the earth has a system of good works. Where somehow, some way, you can work and earn God's favor. You can have more karma that outweighs your bad karma. Or you can do these certain rites or rituals. Or get this person to do this for you. Or whatever, pray these many rosaries. or Whatever it is, it's a system of works. And Christianity is different than all those other systems because it says you can't do it. That's why we need Christ. He did it on the cross. And by faith, you trust in his work. And because of God's grace, you are seen by God as a word keeper. And because he sees you as that, he, and he, because Philippians 1.6 says, being confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work and you will continue to perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, you will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, and you will continue to be more and more characterized as a word keeper. Who do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus? Was he demon-possessed? Was he a deceiver? Or was he rather the father-honoring giver of life. Those are the options. Is Jesus the father honoring giver of life or is he a demon deceiver? There's a third question raised by our passage and that is were the Jews godly? Were the Jews godly? Verses 54 and 55. The Jews claim to be God's children. Jesus claims they're liars. 
John 8, 54 and 55, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his words. So in response to the Jews' questions to Jesus, Are you greater than our father Abraham? Or who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus says, Hey, you're missing my point here. You're completely missing my point. And you're missing the whole point of John's gospel, which reads, speaks out to us as we're reading through this book. John does not make himself, so Jesus does not make himself or exalt himself to be anything. Far from it. He is completely submissive to the Father. Rather, he's saying, but you say he's your Father, but you don't know him. Somebody has to be a liar here. Jesus said in verse 55, If I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Going back to that argument, hey, show me just one way where I haven't kept his word. This is a dividing line that divides everybody in the planet into two categories. There are those who know about God and there are those who know God. J.I. Packer, in his book, Knowing God, said that knowing God is a matter of personal dealing and personal involvement. It's personal dealing because, he says, quote, knowing God is more than knowing about him. It's a matter of dealing with him as he opens up to you and being dealt with him as he takes knowledge of you. If you have a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ... Through the work of Jesus Christ, he has dealt personally with you. He has convicted you of your sins and put in you a desire to repent and turn and trust in Christ as Lord, as master. Some have said, I've read many books, but this is the only book that's read me. Knows exactly what my heart is like. Martin Luther said, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays a hold of me. This is our God. This is what he does through his word. He deals with us personally. And if you've never been dealt personally, if you've never dealt personally with God, you should ask yourself, do you know him? Or do you just know about him? If you have repented of your sins and trusted in Christ's work, then by his grace, you will be able to abide in his word. You will have a habit of keeping his word. It was by grace that Moses knew God. Oftentimes we we, we think that people in the Old Testament live by works and people in the New Testament live by grace. But it's always been by grace. Exodus 33, 7. And the Lord said to Moses, 3317 of Exodus, you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. Jeremiah was saved by grace. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. It is by grace that God knows any of us. John 10, verses 14 and following, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep, and I am known by my own. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and they shall never perish. Those who have true knowledge of Christ 
know him. They've dealt personally with him. They are word keepers by pattern. They honor him by not seeking their own glory and by letting him be the judge. Was Jesus demon-possessed? Was he a deceiver? Were the Jews godly? Or, on the other hand, were the Jews liars who failed to recognize that Jesus is the Father-honoring giver of life? A fourth question raised by our passage. Was Jesus merely human? Was he just a man? Verses 56 through 58. John 8, verse 56. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before he was born, I am. The Jews were angry because of the way Jesus Jesus phrases this statement. He does not say, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see the messianic age. And I am the Messiah. Rather, he says, your father, Abraham, the one you claim to be your father, he looked forward and he rejoiced to see my day. Jesus identified the ultimate fulfillment of Abraham's hopes and joys with his own personal work. Hebrew 11 speaks of Abraham and Sarah. Hebrews 11.13 says, having seen them afar off, Abraham was promised, you know, that physical line, the Messiah, and he saw it from a far distance. It was Jesus that was going to be the blessing to all nations. Genesis 12, 3, all people of the earth will be blessed through you. It wasn't until he was 99 years old that Sarah fell pregnant, who was 90. Abraham saw the continuing seed of Isaac, the beginning of God's fulfillment, he looked forward to the day where all nations would be truly blessed. He could not, the Jews could not comprehend that. They couldn't comprehend that Jesus is standing before them and yet declares to have been the pre-existent eternal God before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am there wasn't any question in their minds what he meant by that. People come time, sometimes they knock on your door and they say, oh, you know, Jesus wasn't really God. Oh, yeah, if he wasn't really God, what about ego I me? Those are the Greek words that he uses 23 times in the book of John. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. John 8, I am the light of the world. John 10, I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. Each one of those statements, he is implying that he is God. He's using the covenant name for Yahweh. I am who I am. Exodus 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Jesus calls upon the covenant name of God to describe himself. I am. And they got the message loud and clear. We know that. From verse 59, where this fifth question comes into play. Fifth question about his identity. Was Jesus a blasphemer? 
Was he a blasphemer because he declared himself to be God? The Jews claimed he was a blasphemer. Jesus proves that he's supernatural. I love this. I love the way this story ends. John eight fifty nine. so they picked up stones to throw at him. He's in a crowd. He's got angry people. He's just declared himself to be God. He was supposed to have a trial. But forget the law. This is so blatant. Everybody heard it. Let's kill him now. And John is so nonchalant in the way he writes. It's, 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 it's just unbelievable. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What? What? Come on, give me some more details. He tells the story like a man, you know? You know what I'm talking about? There are some people, most of them are not men, who are very detailed people. And they can tell you a whole conversation and everything that's happened. And this one's related to that one and all this and all this behind the scenes information. John, he just kind of is a tell, you know, the big picture kind of guy. Listen to some of the events from John's gospel that I think could have been so much like more detailed. Ready? John 6, 11. Jesus then took the loaves when he'd given thanks. He distributed those who were seated so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Wait, wait a minute, what? John six verse nineteen. When they had rowed about three, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. That's it. I, I believe they must have been. John seven verse thirty. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid hands on him because his hour had not come. John 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. John 13, verse 1. Now the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, the Father, having loved his own, were in the world. He loved them to the end. Augustine said this about Jesus' last words in John 8. Jesus flees from the stones, but woe to those from whose heart of stone God flees. This is what's frightening about this passage. That religious people who claimed to worship the true God could be so blind and have such hard hearts against the truth. That they don't even see how much they are opposed to him and that someone must be wrong. I had a Muslim man come up to me one time. We were talking. He said, you're a Christian. I said, yes, I'm a Christian. He says, you believe in Jesus. I said, yes, I believe in Jesus. He says, I also believe in Jesus. I said, really? He said, yeah, but there's a difference. Tell me, what's the difference? He says, you believe that he is God. I believe he was a good teacher. It doesn't compute in my mind. If I were up here today and I claimed to be God before you all and you didn't believe that I was God and I wasn't God, would you walk out of here saying, oh, but he's such a good teacher? The one characteristic that you would have in your mind about me is that I am a loon or a liar. That's two characteristics. Either way. We know why 
now why Paul wrote to Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted because there is such a stark contrast. And brothers and sisters, do not find it surprising that the more you identify yourself with Christ in this world, the more you will be shunned by those in the world who are against Christ. And if you're not sure who Christ is, I encourage you to read this book and ask yourself, what is this story about? Because there's two versions going on here. Which story is this? Is this really John's gospel? Is it the story of the demon-possessed, deceiving, merely human, blaspheming Jesus who was against the godly Jews? Or does this read more like the story of the Jewish liars who desired to kill the Father-honoring, supernatural, eternal giver of life? Those are the sides. There's no middle ground. My prayer is that having walked through this this morning, it will better help us to distinguish those two sides that we might reach over and bring more people to this side by God's grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for your mercy in our lives. We don't deserve to call upon your name. And you have allowed us to come, not only to call upon your name, but to proclaim it. And we thank you, Father, for showing us this morning from your text, from your your gospel, from John's account in John 8, how great the division was. And we thank you, Father, that we can repent of our sins and turn and trust in Christ and, in who, and believe that he is who he said he was and that his work is perfect and that his works were sufficient to pay for our sin and that we can trust in his work and that will motivate us to pattern our lives after him. Though we are not perfect, yet we will continue in the faith. We will abide in you. That should characterize our lives because of your goodness. Motivate us, we pray, and we thank you to the one and only God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Father, this body, those who are true followers, the beloved brethren here to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor is not in vain. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.